Romans uh, 3.21. Romans 3.21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is, give, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference at all between Jew and Greek, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by the grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded because of the law. The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. Thanks, Barry. How come I didn't get any wolf whistles coming up, by the way? You got heaps. Unbelievable. Scandalous. <coughs> Good morning, folks. My name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. Welcome to you if you're new or visiting for the first time today. It's really lovely to have you along. We are um, in the middle, as Mike said, of a, a doctrine series, First Things First, and we're looking at salvation today. Hold your Bibles open. I'll have them handy for that Romans 3 passage because we're going to come back there and we're going to be digging in and drilling down into that quite a bit. Um, but before we do... Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would help us as we ask every week that you help us by your spirit to understand, to appreciate and to respond to your invitation to salvation through Jesus alone. We pray for your glory and for our good. Amen. Um, as I said, fifth instalment of our doctrine series, first things first, been going through the statements of beliefs that we have as a church here. Uh, wrestling through what we believe about central topics that are in the Bible, you know, those sort of key subjects of Christian thought down through the ages. What do we believe about the Bible? What do we believe about God, about humanity, about church, about the Holy Spirit? And we're really trying to nail our colours to the mast, if you like, on where we are drawn biblically on these issues and why we are convinced these are central. Now, if you didn't get an outline, please make sure you go and grab one. Um, in there, there's the statements of belief on salvation. That's the one we're looking at today. Salvation, really, what we're talking about there is how is it that people are actually saved? How is it that people like us can be found at peace with God? How is it that we, who are otherwise sin-filled rebels, deserving of God's right wrath, how can we be forgiven by our holy, righteous and perfect God? who can't even look upon sin. Do you realise that's who God is? I mean, have a look here. This, this is Habakkuk, 
speaking, Habakkuk 1.13, maybe you didn't even know that Habakkuk was there. Well, he is, and this is what he says. 1.13, he says, of God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Do you, do you realise that's who God is? Too pure to look upon sin? Unable and unwilling to tolerate evil? That's a problem for us, you see, because if we are all, in fact, sin-sick rebels at the core, which is how God described us, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago in our sermon on humanity, if that is our position, if that's true, then what hope of salvation have we got? What possibility can there possibly be of being found at peace with God? It is, a, it is the age-old question, everyone's thinking it, we may as well ask it and try to answer it ourselves because generally questions like this have two suggested solutions. The first of which, you'll see in the outline I've listed there, the first of this is the religious solution to the problem. It basically goes like this, that if you do enough good stuff in life or if your mum says, he's got a heart of gold, really, I mean, if that's what happens... Your intentions are mostly good most of the time, then when God gets the supposed balance beam of judgment out at the end of your life and He weighs your life sum on the scales, hopefully the good outweighs the bad and God gives you the green light into heaven. Have you heard of that idea before? Have you heard that sort of thought? No, no doubt you've heard this thinking before. It's as long as you're a good person who tries hard, God or the equivalent supreme being will understand. And will no doubt let you into whatever your upgraded afterlife experience you've imagined is. Friends, that is the basic idea operating behind all religions. Do you realise that? doesn't matter whether it's Allah, you know, ushering you into paradise in Islam, or the hope of joining Buddha in Nirvana, you know, the absence or the escape from the rebirth cycle in Buddhism, or Brahman making you at one with the universe, a state of moksha in Hinduism. Actually, even in many of the, the different sects of Christianity that will actually often get lumped in inappropriately with Christianity, lots of them teach a very similar concept at heart. I would say Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, even the Catholic Church, all at core teach a variation or a version of a works-based salvation. That means a, a salvation that is dependent in some part, large or small, on a person's lived performance. You heard this? Do you understand? Are you familiar with this? Look, I can, I can say it sounds reasonable at one level. I actually understand. You understand why that's a popular belief? It is a popular belief because it matches and it mirrors so much of the way that we expect life to operate. You know, it's the whole reward for effort. There's no free lunches. You get out what you put in. It's that kind of a meritocracy that we sort of operate with. In fact, this is the natural assumption of folks like us it is the default setting of our hearts we think that salvation must somehow be by works as long as i try hard and i'm mostly good god will save me it's the religious solution and it sounds reasonable and it's thoroughly wrong I mean, we established this a couple of weeks ago from Romans 3, verse 10, actually the first part of this chapter that we're looking at today. And here's a quick summary again. It'll flick up on the screen. Romans 3, 10, there is no one righteous. That means there is no one in a right standing before God. That's what righteous means. Not even one. No one who understands. No one who seeks God. No one who does good. Not even one. 
In fact, the last verse before the, the, before the, the section we pick up today, verse 20, Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, do you hear that? That's devastating. What hope have you or I or anybody, what hope have we got to be found at peace with God through performance? He's spoken about as works of the law. You know the stark answer? It is none, nada, zip, zero. I don't care how you say it. It all adds up to the same, no chance. The only thing that your performance will guarantee is at the end it will prove you a sinner like the rest and a rebel against God deserving of his wrath. The religious solution of try hard and hope for the best, <laughs> be better, it's, it's no solution at all. It's a dead end. No one will be found at peace through it. And yet so many people are convinced that's the way it works. That's tragic. But there's good news here because there is another option. It's not the religious solution of do better and hope for the best. It's the Christian answer. It's the Christian solution of it's been done for you and it's found in Christ alone. In fact, have a look there if you've got an outline. Have a look there in our statement of beliefs. Have a look at the very first one. It says just this. Statement one, there is only one name under heaven by which we can be brought into relationship with God, the name Jesus Christ. Now, if that wording sounds strangely familiar, it's because essentially we're quoting uh, the Apostle Peter from Acts 4.12. When speaking by God's Spirit, he said of Jesus, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The Christian solution, friends, God's solution to human salvation is exclusively found in Jesus. Now, before we actually get, because I don't want to just leave it at that. I want to drill down into that a little bit more. I want to unpick how Jesus' death and resurrection, how this unpicks the problem of sin in the face of a holy and righteous God. I want to deal with that. But before we do that, I want to deal with a common objection at this point, which revolves around this idea of exclusivity. Because when we, and with the Bible, declare that Jesus is the only way to salvation, people rightly pick up on the exclusive or specific nature of that claim. Do you hear it? It's there. And it sounds unfair. Because if salvation, if peace with God is only available through Jesus, that's an extraordinarily narrow claim, don't you understand? It's an extraordinarily narrow claim. And the argument goes that if it's that narrow, then it seems as though it preferences some people and overlooks others. In fact, talking with a chap one time, explaining this, wrestling out this with him, he just looked at me in disbelief and said, that's garbage. He said, what about the worthy Muslim or the worthy Hindu or the worthy Jew or the worthy atheist? What about them? You're telling me that they've got no hope? Now, can you feel the concern in his question, the right concern in his question? It's a good concern. He's right to be concerned about the salvation of people from different faith backgrounds. Absolutely. But do you also notice or spot the error in his thinking? It's got to do with that word worthy. You see, the stark reality is, if you read the Bible with your eyes open, the truth is that there is no worthy Muslim, there's no worthy Hindu, there's no worthy Jew, there's no worthy atheist, there's no worthy Christian either. 
In fact, we saw this in Romans 3.10. All have turned away and become utterly worthless, is the word that's used. You see, the problem of sin is universal. It's very inclusive at that point. Notice that. It's everybody's problem. It's a massive problem. We are all unworthy. But the extraordinary good news of the Christian gospel then is that there is a solution, narrow as it may be, but it is genuinely on offer to people of all nationalities, of all stripes, of all colours. It's incredibly inclusive in its exclusivity. Do you see how that's working? Let's look at this. Let me go through a couple of Bible verses really quick to show how this works out. A well-worn, much-loved, extraordinary, extraordinarily helpful John three sixteen. What does it say? It says, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever, whoever believes in Him, shall not perish but have eternal life." Notice the wide scope of the invitation there. The, the wide scope of the invitation to trust Jesus and be saved, it's for whoever. In other words, anyone, regardless of your gender, ethnicity, height, weight, age, etc., whoever genuinely puts their hope in Jesus is assured of salvation and guaranteed eternal life. Whoever. That's magnificently inclusive, don't you think? Can it get more inclusive? But you must take the medicine, so to speak. What I mean by that is God has provided the genuine cure for our sin-sick condition, but it's not enough just to know about Jesus. Believing in him here is not just nodding your head and mouthing the words. That would be kind of like going to the doctor for an illness and getting the antibiotics, carrying them around in your back pocket or putting them in your cupboard and expecting them to cure your sickness. Just having them, just knowing that they're there is not the solution. No, you've got to take the medicine to get the benefit. When it comes to salvation, you must be actively trusting in Jesus and putting your weight on him if he's going to be the one who's holding you up. But the offer is for whoever. Whoever realises their desperate need of God's help. Whoever would trust totally in his faithfulness to his promises to you, not your faithfulness through your performance which let's be honest if it's anything like mine is garbage there's a wonderfully inclusive message of hope in fact acts 2 uh, 39 makes the same point peter again addressing the jewish crowd telling them of the forgiveness made available through christ alone he says acts 2 39 this promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. Again, do you see the inclusivity here? It's exclusively through Christ, and it's for all who are far off, all whom their Lord God will choose. And who is he choosing? He really does care for the nations. He is building a kingdom of people from every stripe, colour and creed. They're all his creation. They're his people. And we see this reality. In fact, we see it played out really lovely in Revelation 7. As the Apostle John is sort of taken up in that vision, as the the curtain is peeled back, as it were, and he gets to see behind the scenes of reality into the heavenly realms. And what does he see at the end? Have a look at uh, Revelation 7, 9. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
And they were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. Do you notice they're from every tribe, nation and tongue and they're saying, Our God? To our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See here, friends, that God is the God of the nations. He is building a kingdom of his people from every tribe, nation and language and there is a limitless inclusivity in the capacity of God to save through Jesus. People are from all walks of life. What does that mean? That means that Christians here, you've got a marvellous gospel to share with people. You've got a marvellous invitation to share with whoever. And it means all people have this exclusive invitation to salvation through Christ made available. Don't waste that message here if you're already a Christian. Don't sit on it or hoard it as though its value will diminish if you share it. Heck no, it won't. Quite the opposite. It is richer for the sharing. And don't pass up that invitation if you're here and you're not currently trusting Jesus in this way. You've been given an inclusive, exclusive invite to a reality and an eternity beyond imagination. Peace with God that lasts forever. And it's yours through Jesus. Don't reject or ignore that. Don't sort of leave that at a distance. Don't put that in the cupboard on your back pocket. Do something with it. But what do we mean, by the way? What do we mean when we say Jesus is the only way? Or actually put it a different way, a better way. How is it that Jesus solves the problem of my sins and the problem of God's justice? How can God be both merciful and just? How does that work? What's the age-old Christian mantra? If I say, why did Jesus die? You'll say, Jesus died for sins. Yes? That's true. It's a true statement. It's a wonderful true statement. It's fabulous news. But what the heck does it mean? In and of itself, that statement alone doesn't actually explain anything of the process. It doesn't tell me what's going on here. How does the death of a comparatively poor Jewish carpenter's son 2,000 years ago, how does that have any personal impact or import for me or for you or for any of the billions of people who have walked the earth at some point in history? What is going on here? <laughs> have you ever wondered that question? You ought have. It's a right question to ponder. Because although the statement that Jesus died for sins is a true statement, it's a right statement, my concern, my genuine concern is that many Christians, we either don't understand how that works or why it's necessary and much less do we feel confident to explain it to someone else. Could you explain it to someone if they ask you, what the heck are you talking about? Jesus died for your sins? What does that mean? Could you explain that? Where would you go? What would you do? What would you say? Well, what I want to do is spend the rest of our time here Working through this question from that passage we heard Barry read out for us earlier. So have your Bible open at Romans 3, 21 to 31. It's fairly thick. It's hard going. There's some big churchy words in here, but I want us to drill down into this. And I want us to work this out so that we not only know, but that we could share the magnificence of the necessity of the cross of Christ that has brought us salvation. Let's have a look at this. Stay on track with me, folks, because if you fall off the horse, you might not get back on. You know what I'm like. I'm Talk fast and use big words. <clears throat> here we go. As we put it all out already, Romans 3, 9 to 20, pointed out the universal problem of sin and the, humanly speaking, impossible, impossibility of being found righteous and at peace with God. It's devastating news and there's no comfort in the, or safety in the numbers at this point. <laughs> Normally I get some comfort by being with others, even when I'm wrong. Not this time. 
But then comes verse 21. Look at it with me. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets, that is the whole Old Testament, to which the law and the prophets testify. That's good news. There's another option. There's another option beside my yo-yoing rubbish performance at which I might be found at peace with God. Notice it's the righteousness of God that's been revealed. The righteousness that belongs to God, the righteousness that he can provide, that's now on display. But how is this righteousness given? Well, look at verse 22. It's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's given. It's a gift. Jew and Gentile alike, independent of and with no reference to an individual's performance or works, this gift is a gift given by faith. In fact, Paul will say this, he will, he will double down on this, he will underline it. Skip your eyes down to verse 28. He says again, for we maintain that a person is justified, strange churchy word, we'll come back to it, a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's fantastic. But is Paul just, you know, off with a bit with the fairies here? Is he sort of just making this up? Did he just pull this out of his ear or what? I mean, how did he get there? This is not how God operates. What are you talking about? The whole Jewish religion is built on something very different, isn't it? How the heck can he get here? What we see is that Paul here is speaking about God in a way that is entirely consistent with the Old Testament. It's entirely consistent with God's MO from the outset. You want an example? Think of Abraham. How was it that Abraham was made right with God? Was it by keeping the law of Moses? That's what the Jewish uh, religion is all about, keeping the law of Moses. Is that, what, is that how Abraham was considered right with God? What's the problem with that? That's hundreds of years down the track. Abraham's a long time before Moses. That hadn't even been given. How, how is that going to help him? No, no, how is Abraham made at peace with God? Look at Genesis 15 verse 6. It simply says this, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, that is, he trusted God and the moment that Abram realised that his only hope was in what God could do for him in spite of his poor performance, that was the moment that God declared Abram in right standing, righteous before him. That's it, Abram. You got it. You trust me? You know that you can't do it any other way? That's, that's the righteousness. This is righteousness. This is what it means to be justified by faith. And it's all God's doing from start to finish. He is the one who gifts people the faith to turn and trust him by his spirit. He's the one that gifts them and, in fact, reveals to them their need to repent and put their hope in Jesus. It all comes from God. In fact, I'm not going to deal with this, but have a look at statement three in, our, in the outline. It's exactly what it's getting at. That it is what we call monogistic. Synergistic means it's in cooperation. Little us, little God, synergism. No, monogism. One way. This is God. This is all from God and all to the glory of God. He does it beginning to end. Now, that's all well and good, you might say. All right, God declares people righteous when they trust in him. He gives them the faith. He gives them his spirit in which they might be able to put their trust in him. But that hasn't dealt with the problem of sin at all. We've just sidestepped the issue, haven't we? No, don't come the raw problem with me, Tim. This is not good enough. In fact, it just makes God look like he's unjust. 
This, as it stands, just makes God seem like he arbitrarily lifts the old cosmic carpet up on some people's sin, turns a blind eye, wipes it underneath, lets them off scot-free, but for others, he'll judge their sin and he'll send them to the old H-E double hockey sticks, if you know what I mean. Write it down, you'll get it. How can he do that? How can he do, can you feel this tension? How can God do that? How can God uphold his own righteousness, and I mean his own rightness, his own perfect sense of justice, if he's willing to let some sinners off and yet judge others to hell? How can he do that? On what basis can he do that and still be just? You see, this is the problem that Jesus comes to satisfy through his death. That statement, Christ died for sins, it's a true statement. It's a wonderful statement, but it's not the primary reason for his death on the cross. In fact, before Jesus' death is about the salvation of sinners, and it is about the salvation of sinners. But before it's about that, it's about the display and the vindication of God's own righteousness as a just judge to prove that he wasn't just sweeping some sin under the fridge like I do at home. You know what I mean? When you're doing the carpet, doing the floors and you're a little bit left over at the end, you just, oh, I don't want to pick that up now, I'll just... Under the, is it just me? Come on, Brian, you know what I'm talking about, clearly. <laughs> Elaine, check your fridge. I guarantee there'll be a pile under there. Is that what God's doing? Picking up some of the dirt, toss it in the trash can, and there's some, ah, I couldn't be bothered to sweep it under the fridge and pretend I didn't see it. No! No, that's what it looks like, but it's not what's going on. Look at how Paul puts this in verse 25. Look at the text with me. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now, do you see what's going on here? Do you see the tension and the problem? God looks as though he's got a massive PR problem at this point. He doesn't look like he's been a just God at all up until this point in history because people then, just as people now, seem to be sinning with impunity. People seem to be able to do as they want, do as they please, and it looks like God's doing nothing about it. He's left sins unpunished. He didn't kill every sinner the moment they sinned on the spot. He should, that's just, but what he's doing is not just. In fact, this goes back to the problem of Habakkuk. Go back to Habakkuk, Habakkuk 1.13. In fact, this is the verse in its entirety. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Do you see the problem that Habakkuk is pointing at? How can God be just and allow sin and evil to continue seemingly unabated? How can he let sinners, like us by the way, Go free uh, to sin time and time and time again. How can he do that and say he's just? Well, enter into the time and space, enter into human history, Jesus. God in the flesh, perfect in obedience to his Father, willing and able, therefore, to pay the debt of sin on behalf of sinners. Look at it in verse 26. Repeats it again. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. That is, at that moment of Christ's death on the cross. God does this to demonstrate at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, in Jesus' death as a substitute, God proves his justice. 
He proves that he hasn't turned a blind eye to sin and swept some under the, under the fridge. He's dealt with it. He's punished it on behalf of his people, but he's done it through Jesus. And just like Adam represented humanity in the garden, and so then when he sinned and fell, we all fell along with him. So now also Jesus stands to represent those who put their trust in him. He is likewise able to represent his people and he gifts us his righteousness at the same time as paying for our debt of sin. But how does Jesus' death do that? I'm not satisfied yet. Again, sounds too platitudinal. All right, I get Jesus' righteousness, he gets my sin. What? Is this a special ninja move that Jesus has got? Like, what's going on here? I feel like it's like one of those Pokemon cards where you go, ah, special secret attack, you did this and it activated my resurrection power and double imputation. (laughs) How does it do that? Is it just some sort of secret magic move? No, it's a logical, rational purpose. It's got something going on here that is absolutely critical to see, necessary and magnificent. Let me illustrate. Let's pretend that I got into an argument. I, I, I burnt Mike's car down in the first service. Let me go with you, Sean. Let's, uh, let's say that Sean and I got into an argument after church. Yeah, I can see that. We had a bit of a disagreement. I fly off the handle, also a possibility. Um, and I set fire to his car. That escalated quickly. Now, I'm not going to do that, Sean. I wouldn't do that. But after the tyres had melted and the flames went out, five minutes after that, I calmed down, I come to my senses, and I apologise to Sean. Are Sean and I good now? No, no, we're not. Sean's shaking his head. No way, he says. No, we've got a problem of a smouldering car in the parking lot. No, we're not good. All right, fair enough. I'll apologise and I'll buy you a new car, Sean. Delivered immediately. There it is. Bang on. Whatever you have to say now. Are we back on good terms, Sean? No. There's another issue here. There's the issue of the law. I've broken it. I mean, there's at least malicious damage, vandalism, probably intimidation. Uh, there's a lot of things going on here. Is it, I'm a lawbreaker. I can't just sort of gloss over that fact. There is a smouldering car chassis in the car park. You can't just ignore it. All right, I'll apologise. I'll buy you a new car. I'll plead guilty before a judge in good standing. I'll perform 100, 200 hours of community service. You name it, Sean, I'll do them. Uh, we're now back on good, we've, we've, we're sorted. We're on good terms like before. What's the problem here? No, we're not on good terms. Why not? You see, there's real relational damage that's been done that hasn't been satisfied just in an apology, a new car and some community service. How can Sean be satisfied that I won't do the same thing again? How can Sean trust me again from this point forward? How can he generate any positive feeling towards me? How do you pretend that that didn't happen? You, you, you know the feeling, don't you? You know this feeling as the perpetrator of sin against others and as the victim of sins from, from people, don't you? This tension of how do I get past this relational thing that's been busted, that I can't touch, that I can't replace, that I can't seem to shift or fix. You see, sin is multifaceted in its effect. It's at least what I want to call the triple debt of sin here. Because when you or I sin against another in this way, there is a physical cost. There is a judicial cost. There is a relational cost that must be dealt with and satisfied if we're going to be made right again. We've all felt it as victims and perpetrators. But we're not talking about sin between each other now. We're talking about our sin before God. And it's far more dramatic. 
because we owe an infinite debt on each of those fronts, physical, judicial, relational. We owe an infinite debt to an infinitely holy, righteous God and there is no way we can satisfy it. There is no way of bringing that back. There's no way of... I've got nothing to give. I owe an infinite debt and I've got a limited capacity. I can't do it. But God can. See, this is why Jesus' death on the cross becomes so critical and necessary. Jesus, as fully human, therefore able to represent humanity, and fully God and therefore able to satisfy the infinite demands and debt on the physical, judicial, and the relational fronts. That's exactly what Jesus' death on the cross does. Look at this with me. Tease this out with me through Romans 3 from 22. Let's see how this plays out logically. He says there, 22, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified. Ding, 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 ding. There's our religious churchy word. What does that mean? What does it mean? Justified. Where does that word come from? Do you know what sort of sphere or, or industry, if you like, that belongs to? Where does it belong to? It's a law term. It's a law term. Justified. It's a legal word. It's a judicial word. It means the same as pardoned. Or treated as innocent. You're not innocent, but you'll be treated as innocent. Pardoned. How is it that people can receive a pardon? How is it that we can be justified before God? Read on. All are justified freely by his grace. That is the determination of God to treat us better than we deserve. That's grace. And it's free for us, but it doesn't happen without cost. Keep reading. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Ding, 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 ding. Redemption. What's that? Another church word. What does it mean? Where, is the, where does that word come from? Redemption. You've all redeemed things in your life. The government's been springing out those Dine and Discover vouchers. Who's redeemed a few of those lately? Ah, yeah, no worries. What do you do when you redeem something? It's a language of finance. It's a language of exchange. Just like you redeem a voucher to shop, it means it's the means by which a transaction is performed. A payment is made. It's not free. Someone else pays the tab. Jesus' death was redemptive. It satisfied the physical cost and it purchased forgiveness for his people. That's what it does. So here already we've seen that Jesus' death solves the physical or financial, and the judicial debt of sin, one to go, and lo and behold, there it is in verse 25. Look at it with me. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Atonement. It's another church word. What does it mean? Friends, that's the relational term. That's the relational term for that problem that Sean has with me that he can't touch, that he can't quantify, that he can't box up and deal with. We couldn't fix it when I burnt down his car. I didn't really burn down his car. But we can't fix it by replacing it. It's the relational damage that must be fixed, that must be satisfied if we're ever to be back on good terms for him to have any positive regard towards me. It must be satisfied. My sin must be atoned for Sean's right wrath must be propitiated. It's the same word. Jesus' death does just that. It's the wrath-absorbing, favour-inducing sacrifice of God. I was reading, actually, it's funny, this word uh, propitiation or atonement. Uh, when I was reading uh, Homer's The Odyssey uh, a while back, um, 
I couldn't believe how often that came up in the, in the Greeks. They understood this quite clearly. They had their pantheon of gods and they would need, if they're going to take a sea voyage, before you do, you've got to do a propitiationary sacrifice. You need to, uh, just in case you've offended Poseidon, you need to make a sacrifice that would say, hey, Poseidon, instead of killing me when I cross the sea, take this sacrifice as a payment in, in lieu and would you actually give me good fair weather as I cross? This idea of propitiation, wrath absorbed, favour inducing. It's very clear in the Greek thinking and here it is God who propitiates himself in the death of Jesus in our stead. And it doesn't just set us back to zero. It doesn't just wipe away the past. It actually produces his favour. Jesus' redemptive death, his substitutionary death, was necessary because it satisfied the only way to satisfy that triple debt of sin on our behalf for those who trust him. And it's legitimate, it's just, and it's reasonable because God is the judge. God is the offended party and God is the only one with the means of solving the debt. And he hasn't swept sin under the carpet. He hasn't swept it under the fridge. Instead, he tips his wrath out for the sins of his people on himself in the person and work of Jesus. Friends, that's how salvation works. That's how salvation comes to people freely by the grace of God through the representational work of Jesus who satisfies your debt. Now, as I said, this is a thick bit of scripture. There's a couple of verses, 10 verses there, but my goodness, there's a lot to, to, um, to chew over in it. I can appreciate that there might be questions and there might be thoughts and there might be still wrestles to have. And I would encourage you, go back and listen to this one on, online and really dig into Romans 3 and see how this is logically working out. See how this underpins and underscores both the vindication of God's righteousness and shows how the cross is necessary for us to be found at peace with God. Please do that. And the only question then that really remains today is, is the question of are you trusting Jesus like this? Have you fully comprehended the enormity of what God has done to offer you a peace and a forgiveness through Christ alone? Friends, it's just, it's exclusive, and it's offered to all freely, but at great cost to God. And it's yours through trusting Jesus. How about we pray as we finish up? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just do thank you for the fact that you are a just judge. We thank you that you haven't swept sin under the fridge. We thank you that you have instead made a way for sin to be dealt with, to be actually properly punished for your wrath, your right and righteous wrath to be exhausted. But you didn't tip it out on every one of us. In fact, you tipped it out on Jesus in his sacrificial death as a substitute for sinners who are looking to you alone for salvation. Father, that is a marvel that is just beyond ability to describe or understand. And we ask that for those who are here today who haven't yet come to understand or trust Jesus in this way, please, Father, we ask by your spirit that you would gift them that new heart that is necessary. By your spirit that they might repent. By your spirit that they may look to Jesus and trusting in him see that your promises have been answered, yes. That your assurance is to save all who turn to you in him. And for those of us here who have already come to understand and trust Jesus this way, Father, increase our understanding, increase our delight, increase our love and our praise of you and deepen our desire, deepen our resolve and deepen our capacity to share this good news of Christ crucified 
and to respond to your grace in every aspect of our life with obedience. We pray it for your good and we pray it for you. We pray for our good rather and we pray it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to finish with a song, folks. Let's sing.